Hey, everybody. It's the end of the year. And if you're listening to this right now, you made it through 2021. Another very strange year. But I hope that that strange year had more good times than bad times for you. Making this podcast would definitely go into the good column for me. And I know that Chris makes feels exactly the same about that. And uh, speaking of Chris, I give him a lot of credit for all that he does in hosting this podcast. He makes it seem pretty effortless most of the time, but getting songwriters to open up about their songs isn't always the easiest thing in the world to do. A lot of times what makes a song great is the real emotion behind it. And I always appreciate people putting their hearts out there like that. Uh, There have been countless times over the course of this podcast where I've learned something about what someone was going through when they wrote a song, and then I related to it, and then I ended up loving a song way more than I already did in the first place. I'm sure some of you probably felt that same way too along the way. We've had an amazing run of guests over the course of 83 episodes so far. There's been some laughs, there's been some tears, and there's been a whole lot of learning. I picked a few clips from the past year to revisit. I could have easily went through and picked five clips from every episode, but instead, I just chose a few moments at random to revisit. I know some people listen to every episode, and I know some people cherry-pick episodes based on who the guest is, but either way, let's dive into these few clips that I grabbed from this year. First and foremost, this is a songwriting podcast. So to hear someone on a songwriting podcast talk about how much they think choruses are stupid was definitely a little out of the ordinary. But what else would you expect from Fat Mike? We had the NoFX frontman on the show back in February, and here's a little clip from his episode. Uh, There's really no chorus to this song. It's got such a strange arrangement, and it's like one of your most popular tracks. I just don't think to write choruses very often. Because, you know, it stops the story. Singing the same thing over and over, it's just kind of (laughs) dumb. You you ever heard that uh, Doug Stanhope record where he talks about, I was playing chicken in my sleep, playing chicken in my sleep, and just keep saying that. Because, you know, in comedy, you can't just keep repeating the punchline. It's not funny anymore. You can't, it's not how it works. You have to come up with new original material every word, every sentence. And uh, I kind of feel that way about music too why do you you have to make it easy for people the very next episode we had sugar ray's mark mcgrath i still have people talking to me about how much they loved mark's episode he's a great storyteller and a pretty down-to-earth guy for someone who achieved a level of fame even beyond his band his episode was about the song every morning but before him and chris dove into the song they reminisced a little bit about a pretty shocking experience on the warp tour do you remember the lightning strike in chicago it's one of the most historical Sugar Ray moments because I don't know if you... Okay, okay. Did, did, did you, were you were you watching the show, Chris, when it happened? I was in the truck warming up for our show, right. okay? And I was watching I was watching you guys. I want to say you were in the middle of fly even when it happened. It was the end of our set. And we had one song back then that people were coming out to see in 97. We still kind of have one song. <laughs> Think about it. But, but so... We played our 30 minute set and you know, you know, the Warped Tour, they don't mess around. They don't care if you sold a hundred million records, have five number one songs. We were playing the driving tent, the tent that folds down at night and goes on the back of a truck. We play after, oh, yeah. we play after a Pulp Fiction cover band and all this. And we went on about, <laughs> we'd go on at one thirty in the afternoon and I'd be walking around the grounds because the Warped Tour was so much fun, especially in 97. What a great lineup. You guys, Social D, sick of it all. Uh, I mean, we could just go on and on with uh, Heptones. It was such a Hepcat. It was such a fun, uh, such a fun tour. So I'd be running around the, the fields all day, looking at all the bands, and people go, "Mark, when, when are you guys going on?" 
I go, we went on six hours ago on the pop-up stage that's being driven to another city right now. <laughs> and and I would tell Kevin, I go, Kevin, like, I know there's a protocol here. I know there's like a level of punk, you know, authority here and sort of hierarchy. And I totally respect that. I just think some of the fans are getting a little bummed out. Is there any way we can move to the third stage? Forget the main stage or forget the second stage. The third <laughs> stage, he goes, got to earn your dues. And I go, Kevin Lyman, I respect you more than ever now, my brother. I respect – we had a record in the top 20. Our song was about to be number one, and he he stuck by that thing. So the, the lightning story – and i sorry I'm a bit garrulous, a bit verbose, and I talk more than I should. But so No, we, it's great. We were doing half-hour sets then, real quick sets. And so we'd do a couple little, you know, little old, you know, punky, new metal numbers, and then we'd end with Fly, right? And we were on this fourth <laughs> this stage in the middle of a Chicago United Center. It was in Chicago. I remember yep. that. Yep. It's about two thirty in the afternoon. We're just finishing up, and we're hitting the last note of fly. We ended a cappella. So it goes, I just wanna, and a lightning strike came down. It hit my mic, hit our stage, and we all just fell on the ground. Now I'm never one to miss a showbiz moment. You know, it lightning didn't hit me, but I got on the ground and lied there for five minutes and didn't move, man. And I, I, <laughs> I soaked up every bit of that god's production that day i chris i can't believe you remember that because people that were on that tour remember that and people that saw the show remember that but it's almost been a part of urban legend now like what did it even happen was it real so i'm glad you're verifying that as this is the truth a few episodes later dickie barrett and joe gittleman from the mighty mighty boston's were our guests uh this episode was all about the impression that i get and i'm a big boston's fan myself and i'm sure a lot of our listeners are too and this is just my opinion, but I think a lot of times when you love a band, you don't necessarily think that the band's biggest song is their best song. Well, despite the fact that I love tons of Boston songs, this is a case where I do think the band's biggest song is also their best song. Yeah, so this is a little clip of Dickie talking about one of the reasons why that might be. People are letting us do this. We're, we're making records. People are coming to see us play, and they're calling us songwriters. So let's maybe get a little bit serious. So, so that sort of was going on at the same time at that, you know, when we're starting to write, let's face it, there was a new president at the record label that we, we ended up on. And it was Danny Goldberg, who, who's known for, for Nirvana and managing Nirvana and, and you know, so, sort of legendary in, in the industry. And he challenged me and he said, you, you know, you're afraid to make a good record and you're afraid to make good songs. Wow. And, and he knew, he knew where to hit me because to this day, you know, being afraid is this, this is not in my vocabulary. And, and he was, you know, and he kept saying that to me and I, you know, I gave him a bunch of fuck yous and I'm not afraid of anything. Then I thought about it and the other guys in the band were anxious to start writing songs that, that, you know, is in, the, in a more traditional sense. So that's what we were doing. And, and it was a little bit awkward, like walking in mud at first and going, uh, uh, you know, like so many things at that time is like people like the ska music all of a sudden turning into death metal. So, you know, should we change that formula? Who knows? But then we started to get into it and started to enjoy it. And, and I'm joking, tell you, I'm an insane fan of like Radio Gold and, and all the hits of the 70s and and songs are always kind of been really important to me so that's what we were doing on the very next episode we had jim adkins from jimmy world his episode was all about the middle but even before they dove into the song chris hit him with a question that i had been wondering for a long time about the album that the song came from and 
As it turns out, Jimmy Eat World were just really smart early on in harnessing the power of the internet. Bleed American was released on July 24th, 2001. And I have to ask my producer, Chris, uh, I'm going to read his exact, uh, <laughs> exactly what he wrote here in my notes, because uh, I think this is interesting and we should talk about it now. Uh, he wrote, ask Jim about this. I was in college when this album came out. I remember he, talking about Bleed American. I remember that before the album was released, all of the demos of the songs leaked onto Napster and LimeWire. My friends and I all loved the whole album before it was even out or even heard. Any of the actual- LimeWire. <laughs> any of the actual recordings. Was this done intentionally or did someone steal the demos and leak them intentionally? It definitely worked in getting everyone excited about the album. And if they decided to do that on your own, it was genius. So did you do that, Jim, or did someone uh, pirate your stuff? Yeah, no, that was that was an internal decision to put up demos on the Internet as it existed then. No kidding. Yeah, because we uh, when we were touring on Static Prevails and Clarity... We were basically the international distributor of our record because the sister labels around the world weren't interested in putting out our record because we'd only sold like 5,000 copies total of both records. So it wasn't like we were on nobody's radar. Yeah. But we really wanted to play in other places in the world. So what we did is we basically just, um, you know, wholesale bought our CDs from Capital Mm -hmm. and then shipped them to Germany where we had a connection with a an independent record store over there in Cologne. And through them, we got <laughs> we got indie distribution around Germany, shipping like, us buying our records wholesale, sh- shipping them to Germany, and then selling them over there. So like on our first gig in Germany, we had like 400 kids there in Cologne. and Which, which is incredible. Which is nuts. Yeah. yeah. So we thought like, okay, what else could we do to kind of um, move this along because we don't have a record label? The record, the, the labels that own this record aren't interested in putting it out. So we thought, let's put some of these demos up on Napster and see if that gets us more people at the shows. Yeah. And it did. Like there was, I met kids in Germany who had heard like the Sweetness demo. Yeah. Because we had a pretty good recording. We had a pretty good demo of that before we, we made Bleed American. And um, yeah, people were into it. Fast forward to April when we had Frank Turner on the show. I'd never met Frank, but I'd always known his reputation as being one of the most well-liked people in our world of music. His episode was about his amazing song, Recovery. And from the very first lyric of the song, the great backstories began. Like a lot of my songs, the initial sparking off point was a kind of a snapshot image or experience, which was very real, which is that not long after we'd broken up, I feel like this is long enough now that now I go that I can be completely true in this, <laughs> truthful in this story. Let, let's hear it. I, I ended up going to a birthday party of a model, right? <laughs> in uh, in a warehouse in fashionable East London. You which cheeky is like twat. Williams. Well, the thing is, that is not a kind of social environment in which I'd ever really been before or since, because it's really not the kind of shit that I do. Um, but I, end, I was recently single. I was recently successful and it was i got an invite and I thought, ah, fuck it let's go um and i ended up over there and at the time there was this new drug doing the rounds called methadrone which was a kind of plant food but it was basically like very very cheap coke um and <laughs> which 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 put you in a really emotionally weird situation when you were coming down as well um i once took some and then in the following morning watched robin hood prince of thieves and burst into tears when the king arrives at the end and it's sean connery <laughs> I will not allow this wedding to proceed. My lord. Unless I'm allowed to give the bride away. You look radiant, cousin. No. 
So it's a strange experience. And, um, but anyway, I've been at this party at this model's house and it had all been very fucked up. And like, I was really uncomfortable. I don't like that sort of scene. I've never really been cool. I didn't want to become cool. And, and I was obviously not in a particularly settled emotional place. And, and, I met, and I did that classic thing of making a phone call <laughs> towards the end of the night slash beginning of the morning um, <laughs> to, my, to my recent ex to kind of go, oh, I fucked it all up. I'm a complete arsehole. And she was just like, I don't really know what you want me to say at this point but you should let me go back to sleep kind of vibe and and that was the that's the first verse of the song blacking in and out in a strange flat in east london as much as we love getting the big artists to come on the show and talk about their songs that everybody knows chris and i agreed from the start of this podcast that calling attention to smaller up-and-coming artists was just as important hence why we do the band you might not know segment every week and we also agreed that we're every now and then going to do an entire episode about a lesser known artist that we thought deserved the spotlight. One such example from this past year was Rosie Freighter Taylor, a young London based singer and guitarist who really blew our minds when we heard her. Uh, She was also an absolute delight of a person. And I really think her episode stands up there with any that we've done over the past year and a half. Here is her talking a little bit about starting the songwriting process a little differently than she normally would. Do you usually write lyrics first or the chords first and the melody how how and how did this song come about so this one uh, is a bit of a maverick uh this this song actually uh sprouted from a, a voice note so when i was i spoke of earlier about being on tour when i was on on tour in germany um this this melody the chorus melody just came to me and i ended up recording it as a voice note entitled slow jam <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it started melody first, which is quite uncommon for me. I'm normally, as you might be able to guess, a harmony harmony gal, uh-huh. harmonic gal um, at heart because you know I love I love jazz harmony, I love complex harmony. But yeah, this is um, and this is potentially why the track has a poppier flavour to it because I started with um, that voice note and I knew when I uh, was singing it uh, that I wanted it to have sort of a deep groove so like a really heavy groove yeah so that that's how that started and that is how I uh, came up with the chorus melody and then I obviously harmonized the chorus melody using my sort of complex uh, you know the sounds that I love in my head Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick break for a few words from our sponsors, but we'll be right back with the second half of our look back on some great moments from 2021. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our 2021 clip highlight show or whatever you want to call it. In July, we had Verite on the podcast. I've been trying to get her on the show for well over a year because I'm such an enormous fan of her music. And to hear her open up about a really personal song like Younger Women was pretty damn special. There were a lot of moments during this conversation that you could you could hear it in her voice. It was real experience and emotion that inspired this song. Something else that I, I mentioned a moment ago that I, that I love about this first verse is it just, it sounds personal. And I, I feel like there's some pain there that I can actually feel that I can actually feel. Oh, yeah. You know, you, 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 you have to be able to sell that. I mean, I had a producer tell me when I was young, I was probably 21. And he said, you're not selling it. And I'm like, what's he talking about? I didn't know what that meant. And I just I think I wasn't feeling it. I was young and maybe that lyric wasn't grabbing me. But sometimes when you write a lyric and it hits you here, it translates from your heart through the microphone on onto uh, the the recording and and I can feel that here. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the music that I write is is intended to to share a feeling and most of my feelings are dark, right? And but at this particular juncture, I mean, my life had really disintegrated um through like a, a long story that I won't get fully into, but it, you know, it was the end of a relationship. He won't mind me talking about this because it's all we've mended. It's COVID, you know, <laughs> I mean, you, you come full circle. Um, but, you know, I was with my partner for so long and he was my creative partner as well. Right. We, oh, we, wow. we co-produced new skin together and, you know, there was just, a you know, uh, circumstances which caused that to disintegrate at the beginning of COVID. And so it was like having the rug pulled out and all you have is this pain and only time to sit in it. And I think I'm really right. grateful for that experience because it's such a gift to be able to just sit and not have the opportunity to be distracted. There was nowhere to go. There wasn't mm. enough television to watch. And so <laughs> I sat and just played this song. This was like my first month of quarantine writing and producing this um, with all of that pain, with all of that. And so the fact that it translates is really interesting. But also I wasn't in communication with my partner. Right. And so this was also an attempt to communicate in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that is a really interesting, I guess, mode of, of the lyrics is like when yeah. you can't speak to somebody, but you're trying to communicate with them. One of my personal favorite episodes of this year was when Brendan B. Brown from Weedus stopped by to discuss Teenage Dirtbag. You'd be hard-pressed to find a nicer, cooler person in all of music, and he's an insane songwriter and musician. He ended up giving us an exclusive live performance of the song, but before that, he shared the actual bell from the recording of the song, as well as a few secrets to where he finds some of his studio gear. See if I can get a clean strike for you here. Yeah, that sounds that that sounds like it to me. That is yeah, all. Right. That's the actual one. That's the actual is it uh, safe to say, Brennan, that you're a pack rat? <laughs> I am a pack rat. You can see this is this is but a sliver. <laughs> He's got the damn bell from 25 years ago, and you should see what's behind this guy. Yeah. So like, Phil, it like was Sanford and Son. Yeah, right. Exactly. Definitely. I'm definitely a junkyard rat. Um, I respect it. Cheers to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I build, uh, you know, when you record drums, you make baffles so that there's no snare bleed and some hi-hat bleed. I make that out of stuff I found in the trash, literally, always, you know. Oh, look at this piece of rubber that somebody's throwing out. I could yeah. put a microphone behind that, you know, so. Hey, Bob, um, you going to throw out that doormat anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't don't get to talking to my band about that because they have much to say. Without a doubt, the wildest episode of the year had to be when we had Bill Manspeaker from Green Jello on to talk about Three Little Pigs. His energy and enthusiasm are contagious, and he's a hell of a storyteller. If you want to have some laughs and be inspired, I highly suggest that you go back and listen to his episode. Here he is talking about some of the song's origins. So I'm sitting at the traffic light, and in every single pole would have 80 million band flyers, you know, Legs Diamond, Hot Mama, uh, Kicks, you know, Stick Kitty, you know, blah, blah, blah. All these funny heavy metal bands. Yeah. So out of boredom, just like anyone else in their car with your friend, I start making funny band names. Legs Diamond, Hot Mama, Mother Goose and the Triple Bears. And my friend starts laughing at the Mother Goose Triple Bears. And then I go, and all they do is nursery rhymes. Little pig, little pig, let me in. And my friend goes, oh, mother, where am I? And this is all on a red light. But we're dying. All we got is that. That's it. That's all right. we have. And we think it's the funniest goddamn thing in the world. So I go to work. And I'm, I'm a security guard at NBC. I just moved to Hollywood. So I got all kinds of time all day long. I'm just sitting there picking my nose, walking around on the Price is Right set, you know? So yeah. uh, I just start cranking out words uh, about my life. You know, the, every, every one of those pigs somehow represents myself at that time living in Hollywood and what I was exposed to. And yeah. then I just cranked out all the words. And the first, the first time we ever played this was on a Wednesday night on Hollywood Boulevard in front of 10 people. And nine of those people were the band members of Guar. No kidding. They happened to be in town. A friend of mine who was in a local theater band in Hollywood named Dookie Flyswatter. He was in a band called Haunted Garage. Uh-huh. I remember that name. And he, their band ruled Hollywood. When I moved here in the late 80s, early 90s, they were the biggest thing. And Dookie immediately embraced my humor and gave me shows with him. So Dookie brings Guar to the show. They hear that song, and afterwards... Uh, Beefcake the Mighty, who was Michael Bishop at the time, tells me, you have a hit song right there. If you want to talk about heartwarming moments from the show, look no further than our episode with Christian Jacobs of the Aquabats. His episode is absolutely fascinating on so many levels, but when Chris asked him about a specific lyric in the song, man, I got a lump in my throat even when I was listening back to the clip to put it in this episode. Here's the Bat Commander himself explaining the meaning of applesauce in the song Super Rad. What's with the lyric applesauce repeated three times? So I have an, uh, I have an adopted brother and sister. from. They're from Romania, and they both uh, have like really extreme cerebral palsy. And um, my younger brother, uh, Andrew, he loved the Aquabats, and he came and saw us play. And he's in a wheelchair, and he, he's in his 30s now, which is crazy to think about, but... 
the way he would say aquabats is he'd say applesauce. He'd say applesauce, applesauce. And so Aww. we just thought that would be rad to give him a <laughs> shout out in the song. And so then whenever he would hear the, the end of the song, he would laugh because he knew that he kind of made that, you know? Oh man, that is, that is awesome. He's partially blind and he can't see, but he loves music and he like really lights up when he hears uh, songs he likes. And Super Rad is like one of his favorite songs because when he hears Applesauce, he just starts laughing like, hey, hey, that's me, you know? Because he, he knows that it's Aquabats, but he says it Applesauce just because that's how he can say it, right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so we just gave him a little shout out in there. And then also that kind of speaks to the like underdog of it all. It's like pe- people with, disabilities and and injuries and people that are you don't expect to win like this is for them you know this is for this is for the applesauce (laughs) and of course just before the holidays we had d snyder on the podcast he was energetic hilarious and super honest and i gotta say pretty inspiring Uh, Before him and Chris dove into We're Not Gonna Take It, they dug into some of the backstory of the band. Here's Dee talking about being self-aware about Twisted Sister's image. Every picture they brought, every picture that they blew up and said, I love the show. It was a a grimace. It was some scary, intense. I said, that's what they, they're not buying me shaking my ass and pouting. Yeah, I got to leave that for Brett Michaels when he comes along. You know, I, yeah. so I, I realized, okay, you know, you know, be true to yourself. My wife said, you don't wear makeup, do you? you wear war paint? So yeah, those are just a few clips that I grabbed from this past year. For anyone out there who might be in the category of people who only listen to the episode if they know the artist or like the song, I humbly request that you go back and take a listen to some episodes where you don't know the artist or the song. We put a lot of love into every episode, and you might just end up finding your new favorite song, or you might end up loving a song that you really didn't care for. And for those of you who listen to every episode, yo, thanks. Chris and I are going to keep bringing the heat in 2022. However you choose to do it, I hope you all party hard and safely to celebrate and commemorate the passing of time, and we'll see you next year. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.